Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I am Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show number 71. I hope you're having a beautiful January. We are. We, um, we, yeah, lots of friends, lots of family, lots of time together. And even though we're now getting into our work year, it's just so lovely to go at that beautiful slow January pace. So I hope wherever you are in the world, um, if you're up above and freezing, 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 that you're getting lots of cozy time. And if you're down here where it's sweltering hot, you're getting lots of beach, beach time in. Today's show is a wonderful show with an inspirational farmer, uh, Jody Roebuck. Uh, he has the Roebuck Farm. It was uh, something born out of a, a, a passion and a curiosity for how we can leave the earth in a, in a better way than we found it. And restoration farming and regenerative farming practices are something he's particularly passionate about. He has trained under Joel Salatin and he has then taken that knowledge, put it into practice in not only his farm but helping others design their farms and really starting to get great conversations happening between farmers so that everybody uh, knows just how much can be done to protect our soil, cultivate great soil and keep our soils nutrient-rich, sequester more carbon than we produce. Uh, And a lot of the things that unfortunately often get... How should I say this? Uh, not talked about in the conversation around whether eating meat is going to contribute to climate change. Now, there are a lot of forms of uh, eating meat that do contribute to climate change where uh, more carbon is produced than is sequestered. And uh, and that's an absolute fact. But unfortunately, that seems to be um, the only message out there when it comes to um, uh, people who choose to be omnivores and, and eat uh, animal products and, and meat. And often leaves us feeling guilty, feeling confused. Am I really doing the right thing? Especially, you know, you're trying to lead a low-tox life and do best by people and planet. And and I see that doubt creep in and I see a lot of people watch those um, propaganda-esque Netflix documentaries that make us think we're harming the planet and really it's it's the type of farming that is is not doing so right by uh, planet rather than uh, all meat eating is bad. Um, I fully understand vegetarians and vegans wanting to avoid meat for their own um, moral and um, personal preferences, That's of course. And then there are a lot of people who just feel better as vegos. Uh, and that's, of course, totally fine. You will never, ever hear me saying there is only one way to eat. Uh, the only way is to strive towards a whole foods way, uh, more real food, less weird food, <laughs> less additives, preservatives, all this crazy fake process stuff. But really from there, it's about what makes you feel good and what sits right with you. And and today's conversation with Jodi is such a wonderful one, not only for omnivores trying to make sense of whether eating meat is actually um, a good and viable thing moving forward, 
Um, and a side note there, of course, we should really work towards eating a little bit less meat across the board and, and varying our diets more. That's inarguable. Australians, especially, and Americans, we eat um, the most meat out of anybody on the planet per capita. So, you know, more eat meat we eat, less room for veggies uh, is what I always think. So, you know, make it a part of your meal by all means, but really crowd that plate out with abundant, colourful vegetables um, and and we'll be doing a lot better uh, overall that way. Um, but back to my point, so it's not only for omnivores to seek out and, and truly understand that there are ways that we can farm um, that do right by people, planet and animals um, as best possible and actually enhance the soil and enhance and rehabilitate landscape. And you would have heard me talk with the wonderful Paul Grieve from um, Southern California, show number six that one was. So if you didn't catch my show with Paul from Primal Pastures, that's another great one to listen to if this is a topic of interest. And so for our vegetarian and vegan listeners, you might not want to listen to today's show, given we do talk about animal farming. So I'm just putting that up front so that no one is offended. But by the same token, you might also want to listen to it to just keep an open mind for your friends who are omnivores about the fact that they're not actually destroying the planet if they're seeking out these wonderful um, products from regenerative farms, especially. Um, This is obviously, we have amazing farmers all over the place doing all types of farming, working as hard as they can, the best way they know how at this point in time in their lives. So please, if you are a farmer and you're not a regenerative farmer, do not take this show personally. Um, again, use it as a tool for curiosity. Maybe reach out to Jody and ask if you can have a consult with him and see what can be done um, to farm more regeneratively. As a consumer, it, it just sings to me hearing that this is a, a way of farming that is growing and growing and, and getting more traction because I, I don't want to eat meat if it's harming the planet. Um, and I and I, I just find it fascinating that if we work with nature and work with the natural habitat, uh, the natural um, habits of animals in the wild, then we start to actually see that it's, it's the best science going and we can enhance that with some of our modern knowledge to really create something incredible. And so I, I have, I've just been so inspired by this chat and I hope you will be too. I just want to remind you that, of course, we have the wonderful Goodness Me Box uh, supporting our show this week. Again, you've only got two weeks left to make the most of $10 off your first box, which makes it uh, $15 instead of $25. Yes, I can do maths. That's good. Um, and Peter founded this company uh, to help people connect to brands doing better by people and planet, uh, less, you know, no preservatives, no weird additives um, that are harmful in any way, sometimes single ingredients to inspire us um, for our from scratch cooking, but also some really amazing um, snacks and, uh, and um, healthy options. A lot of people are constantly striving to find, uh, you know, what's going to be a great snack or, and sometimes you just don't have time to make it yourself. And so they have six to eight samples in every single box, often full size product. So it's an amazing value, um, to get that for $25. And, uh, and I've very much enjoyed, uh, the boxes that I've received over, um, the last couple of years. Uh, I always make use of the ingredients inside. And if you're starting your subscription, 
around about now, then the February box is obviously going to be Valentine themed and it has been especially curated by fitness queen Lorna Jane. Uh, so I'll be curious to see what, what's going inside the February box. Um, but yes, the code is LOTOX and it, it's as simple as that. And you pop that in when you start your subscription, which can go for as long or as short an amount of time as you fancy. Uh, goodnessmebox.com. Go check it out or pop through the link in the show notes as well. Um, you can get to it there. So without further ado, oh gosh, I don't know if you heard that car screaming past. I've got the windows open because it's really hot tonight. And that was uh, someone not driving at a family-friendly suburban speed. So I hope um, everyone's safe out there. Anyway, I hate hearing cars driving super fast around suburbs. Ah, total tangent there. Let's um, let's get started with this amazing chat with Jody. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do and uh, connect to his work. We've got all of the links to Roebuck Farm, upcoming workshops. I know they've done a bit of work with permac- Milkwood Permaculture. Um, it was actually Nick who introduced me to Jody. Uh, so um, so yeah, we're we're in good company. If you haven't heard my chats with Nick about permaculture and another one that I did with him about bees, then hop to the archives of the show and and check those out as well. They're so great. So enjoy my chat with um, Jodie today. It's uh, it's time to get inspired by the way we shop for our animal products and really start connecting with the farmers that are farming regeneratively and leaving soil and land in better shape than how they found it. Enjoy, guys. Hi, Jodie. How are you? Very good, Alex. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, it's great to have you here. Uh, it's not often we get to talk to a wonderful uh, farmer behind the scenes about the work you're doing um, that helps us connect um, much more deeply with uh, why we shop the way we do and why we support the farmers um, that we do to send a message that we want more farming like this because it just makes sense and it's so amazing and strangely it's cutting edge but at the same time it's almost like just going straight back to square one of nature, isn't it? Absolutely. The the one-liner underneath our Roebuck Farm logo is agrarian innovation. So, yep, this, we're, um, we're about embracing the past and, you know, some of the, the great new um, technology as well that's, um, you know, they're great enablers yeah. as well. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, so how did you actually come to be a, a regenerative farmer? Was that something, you know, were you born into it or was it a discovery you made along the way? Uh, my mum's a gardener so I grew up um, coastal on the west coast of New Zealand in Taranaki. Um, did a lot of surfing and had a design background, so I guess I really probably got it from mum. And after um, several years in commercial orchard work, I um, it probably began with me. I, I did an apprenticeship um, growing um, heritage seed or heirloom seed, and that was that was two years. That was really the turning point for me. And that was in two thousand, and from there, yeah, just been chasing agriculture around the world. Um, agriculture's been prior to being you know, right into agriculture. I hadn't uh, travelled abroad and uh, say agriculture's been um, my vehicle for, for seeing the world and, you know, how people are producing food mm-hmm. in different cultures, different climates. Yeah. And um, was um, the aspect of regenerative farming principles something that you, you found along the way once you were already working in farming? How did that sort of come about? 
I guess I've always kind of sat with the, some of the principles um, from from right back, um, and I, you know, as we kind of explored the organic territory, um, I, right from the beginning, I was interested in farming with my own resources, mm-hmm. and um, it's kind of just been a journey from there, really. Where um, the beginning of our farm, we didn't bring anything in for a long time, probably the first eight years. We bring a little bit in now, but we we just really like to work with what we've got and make the most of that. And um, yeah, small small intensive agriculture. Um, I think management intensive is a common term in both the grazing and the market gardening work that we're doing as well. So management's a big big part of it. Um, you know, it could be, you could be organic or conventional, um, but really it's the what and even just in the organic paradigm uh there's a a big spectrum there you know that are different uh, basically the how we're doing it is that's what really interests me mm, interesting yeah. yeah and so uh for people who aren't aware of all of the the things that can go on um some of the more technical terms uh s- sort of like you hear a lot of farmers use the word input um and considerations there. Can yep. you sort of talk us through the background of what you're considering as a farmer trying to do best by people and planet and animals um, uh, in in that sort of that journey of making decisions? I guess because you said, as you said, there organic. There's even a big spectrum of of how you can farm within that yeah. that term. Yeah. Yep. So, um, well, I guess the for, you know it's. The the management's a big part of it. That's the you know the human aspect to it. But then the resources. Um, I think the you know in the past we just didn't have the means to uh, bring in truck and trailer load units of whatever resources compost. Um, you know things were it was much more of a hand scale agriculture. Um, the I, th- I think the. Um, that main principle for us is working with what we have and just being effective with it. So the the probably the challenge with the market gardening is that we're exporting off the farm, right? You know, the the market garden's relatively new with us. Prior to that, we were just solely growing in, in seed production, so growing seeds. So nearly everything stayed back on the farm in terms of the plant material at the end of the season. It was just the the seeds we were marketing. Mm-hmm. So I think the um, really some of the real key principles for us is it's it's all about ground cover, um, covering the soil at all times, and we can do that in, in lots of different ways. And it's the, whether that's the, the gardening or the grazing work, it's all about covering the soil. Why is that um, important? I think the, the extremities with the, um, you know, the, the sun, the wind, and the heavy rain. Mm-hmm. Um, can really be quite detrimental to to the sources. It's not really my focus, but you know, the if we called it, um, looked at the term degenerative agriculture, we've lo- we have lost a lot of our nutrition, our our, um, our, our topsoil, um, whether it's market gardening or, or grazing. Um, you know, in a relative sh- since dust- industrialization. Mm. Uh, mm. So I guess what really excites me, the the term regenerative agriculture. Uh, is that we can actually farm and improve our landscape as we go, and that's um, it's maybe that's a new concept currently, but it's actually an old agrarian yeah. way of you know manage, managing your land for for millennia. 
Yeah. And, and improving it as you go. So there's some trade-offs, you know, it's, it's a little more work for sure. Um, but there's just for the market garden, for example, we it's key for us at the scale we're at. We're, um, without any garden, without path space, it's just growing bed space. We're about 800 square meters, mm-hmm. including some greenhouses. Um, it's, it's integral that I direct market everything that we produce and that we're also really – um, we make good decisions about what crops we are going to grow that are that are profitable, um, and yeah, we've just got to be the middle person as well um, to to make it financially viable. Um, there's some challenges with the grazing um, here. Every part of the world's got their different um, legislation, but yeah. for us, most of the pattern I'm seeing, whether it's in the seed model or or with the grazing, is most of the Infrastructures are getting bought up um, by the larger companies and everything's getting centralized. So, for example, for us, for me to direct market a, a sheep mm-hmm. to customer, that sheep's got to go three hours on the truck and I've got to send so many at once for it to be, for it, for them to even take take the animals. And that just, yeah, that's a challenge in itself. Um, uh, the way we run our animals um, I'm right into low-stress stock handling, which yeah, is just basically pressure-free farming. I just don't like the idea that they've got to go um, on someone else's truck and trailer unit and just experience fear for the first time and be handled um, by by other people and travel and go into that, that environment. So that's just a reality for most production, but it's, it's – we we're very it's very seldom we sell sell sheep to the works. Mm. Yeah. And is it is there anything we can do as as um, omnivores who eat meat to um, to shift this? Like, is it is is there a possible tipping point that starts to allow a relocalization of local abattoirs because it's thriving in the local area? Uh, like, or is it is that it? Are we done now and it's centralized and that's how it's going to have to be? Well, it's definitely centralised, but all the like just here, for example, the resources are still around. Um, so there's one farmer I'll probably talk a bit, fair bit about in this interview. His name's Joel Salatin. Yeah. His his farm is Polyface Farm. He's in Virginia. I've done a fair bit of work with him. He's been a big influence on us. Um, there's there's so many op- so many different ways to um, you know approach it, but his farm um, they joined in with other other local farms and brought. Uh, a, an abattoir that was closed down, mm-hmm. and they um, so, and so they manage it themselves. Um, they rotate the staff around. So, for example, the staff that work on the kill floor, they only work there t- a couple of days a week. It's not something to do day in, day out. And um, the, you know, there's respect for the animal. Um, you know, honor, honoring the life and um, the way that they're grazing. I mean, they're direct marketing everything. Also, mm-hmm. um, I think. Joel's daughter-in-law Sherry, I think she she took over the marketing, and and took it took it from <clears throat> excuse me from you know managing fifty or a hundred families to um, they they their buyers club they supply five thousand families and a bunch of restaurants, and they direct market everything within maybe it's more or less about four hundred miles radius, and they just won't sell their produce any further. So getting to know your farmer. And and how 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 they're farming um, is a 
a pretty effective way um, to uh, to to see change on the landscape. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. uh, so in my travels, I'm seeing a lot of, uh, especially in the drier parts of the world. And so we're very wet here in Taranaki, New Zealand, but. Um, the dry parts of the world is really where I'm seeing a lot of the innovation and where, you know, just you're, you're forced um, to through the pressure or the challenge to, to make change. And I'm seeing in, you know, some of the central states in America, like um, even Oklahoma and Tennessee and that where generational farmers or ranchers have, um, have just hit the wall and they've just been forced to make change. Very similar pattern that I see with, um, you know, humans that have a health crisis and that's, that's mm. quite often a journey to, hey, well, I'm, okay, let's look at what I eat and where can I make some improvements there. And so whether it's our diet or the landscape, the two are pretty pretty connected. Yeah, that's a great um, an, an, a connection to make that, you know, it, and, and isn't it a f- unfortunate that humans wait till crisis, crisis points to make changes? Yeah, <laughs> we haven't quite got right. No, yeah. we haven't quite got that right, no. Yeah. I think Joel Salatin says, you know, challenge breeds innovation. Mm. So. Yeah, it often ends up being a springboard to better better days, right? So um, yeah. I love the term that you use there, degenerative farming. I don't think I've even heard um, that used before, but it just makes so much sense to talk about it while we talk about regenerative farming, which is something I really understand um, because then it really yep. helps newbies kind of realise, well, there's a there's a way to farm that's unfortunately making our soil – uh, weaker and weaker and less nutrient rich over time, and it's creating drier landscapes as well, isn't it? Yeah, and, and erosion, mm. um, less less of a buffer. So, so just here in Taranaki, we've gone from a very wet spell. It's um, you may find it hard to believe, but it's just rained for a year and a half. Last summer, we didn't we didn't get a summer, and now we've just gone into um, probably the hottest, driest spell that anyone can remember: late spring into early summer. And you know we've got grass everywhere on our farm, and this it's not about them and us, but it's about understanding you know really how pasture works and man- managing your animals to have positive impact on on the pasture. The there's farms around that within 30 days of dry weather they've got nothing on their farm and they're at you know reaching crisis point where they've got to take their animals off the farm. Oh they're forced gosh. to sell, and so because everyone's farming similar um there's so many animals going to the abattoir that they can't take all the animals and then what we see in the supermarket when there's a drought uh is meat's discounted and nobody's i mean there's a i guess the customer can do can do well at the end of the process but nobody along the process the farmer um, the middle person it's uh it doesn't support yeah, and yeah. But interestingly enough, that the analogy we can make there is one similar to the fashion industry where you buy your $10 pair of jeans um, and that might be great for you, but the cost is well-worn is well worn all along the process from the very um, se- cotton seeds that are born right through to production of that garment, everyone's paying um, except yep. you. And that that's not a world that's sustainable if we're the only ones who win. So that's why in Low Tox Life we always talk about for people and for planet and it's got to be a win-win, otherwise it's not really a win. Um, yeah. And and so you, you said there, there are some farmers that are 
coming to the end of a 30-day dry spell and then that's it, they reach a crisis point. So is it the fact that you're – what is it exactly about the way you farm, do you think, in terms of regenerative farming? Is it rotation of animals through the property? Is it that – that um, that kind of principle that means, yeah, I'd, I'd just love for people to understand that a little bit better. Well, the um, I guess that there's a whole lot of different terms that the people are using with the grazing, and it probably started with rotational grazing in the 60s, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Andre Voisin, for those that are interested in doing some reading, he wrote a great book called Grass Productivity. Oh, yeah. He, so I, th- I think w- where I'd like to start with this is because the, there's a lot of details, but the principles are very simple. Um, he identified actually what is overgrazing, and I think it's fair to say most people think that overgrazing is too many animals, right? And that's, yeah. Um, and that's, my kind of measure is when people un- when when people realise it's not the number of animals, it's the, actually the timing on the grass, and they're beginning to to understand the um, what overgrazing is. But Andre Voisin, um, and this would vary a little with different climate, but during the growing season, when the grass is really starting to grow fast, he's he's gone identified that it's no matter how many numbers of, of animals, whether it's a few or many. The return to the pasture when it's in its juvenile state is very detrimental to it. Um, it can't photosynthesize. The roots can't put out root exudates and feed the soil. And that's typically how a lot of the world's grazed, especially New Zealand. Joel Salatin called us one of the most overgrazed nations there is. Oh, wow. And so it's all to do with the age of the grass when the animals return to it and sub- Basically, the grass that's juvenile is um, not ready for grazing. And, you know, most of New Zealand's on a 30-day rotation, so mm-hmm. that's 30 days till the, the herbivores come back. Um, and so we, we've we noticed um, by managing – I just got really interested in using the animals. We run sheep, um, using them as a tool to, um, in a timely manner – make a, a, a positive impact on on the, the pasture and the landscape. And I've, we found ourselves about 90 days is, is how long it takes to come back to both be looking after the animal and the, and the landscape. And by farming like this during the warm season, yeah. um, we're just seeing uh, we've always got grass ahead of ourselves. Our animals have always got fresh food every day. And we're seeing more and more diversity um, in in our pastures. Um, and then during the warm season, we've found ourselves at about 120 days in that recovery period. And so the the first first kind of um, query or question we get frequently asked question with this is okay, so you've got a longer recovery period. You must need more acreage, and mm. it's actually the reverse. We because there's more recovery period, basically the, the whole farm is on sabbatical and it's only a small daily area that has the the managed animal impact. So imagine we've got more vertically on the farm in terms of pasture mm-hmm. and we've got a bigger root system under the ground. And so 
as we uh, mimic nature and in, in nature animals mob together because of the predator mm-hmm. and they, they move regularly and then it's a long time till they come back and they're, they're followed by birds so the 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 more regular the move and um the tighter the animals will be mm-hmm. because mob grazing and this is how they um they they enjoy um you know living close together like this that's how and, they thrive yeah yeah sure and it, it, it lots of things happen one thing is real positive is um through the higher stocking density the closeness of the animals they begin non-selective grazing, and this is a really positive tool. Basically, they begin eating things that they never used to touch, and so you can evenly manage all of your pasture species. Mm-hmm. And if we look back to, let's call it a degenerative system where the animals are in the same area, sometimes constantly, mm-hmm. or they come back too soon, they actually are much more selective about their grazing, and they can overgraze or even eliminate the palatable species and those that aren't so palatable become problematic and there comes a whole industry in itself and oh wow um, yeah and and spraying and and management so that's just one one of the positives we we don't use any type of sprays on our farm in terms of needing to manage a a grass with a poisonous spray or um even as fertilizers or you know any inputs the um the grazing system really looks after itself and we're just seeing improvement upon improvement. Isn't that interesting? So the degenerative farming way actually breeds fussy eaters as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Wow. Yeah. And, and it's a good call and it's common, you know, farmers visit. Um, and don't get me wrong, I love all farmers. I've just something to learn off, off every farmer. Oh, I agree. Um, but, and yeah, everybody out there is working hard. That's the thing, you know. It's yeah. not that there's – this is a judgment. It's more of an exploration of is there a better way we could be doing things to look after our planet and the people who eat the um, the produce and the animals, you know, to to mimic then life in nature. I find that fascinating that they actually want to group together. Um, you know, I think factory farming has made us think, you know, they're all stuck together and it's horrible and, and, and it is for a whole bunch of reasons that factory farming is. But um, – what you're talking about, it's more like coziness and because yeah. they're still yep. in their natural habitat and, and acting cozy as they normally would. Yes. And so it's, um, it's been, a, it's a, you know, I was actually a vegetarian for 13 years. It was just when we brought the farm for, for the market garden that I began, um, okay, how am I going to manage the, the outer acreage? And yeah, it's been a, a real journey. It's been, I really enjoy it. And the, the herbivores, um, yeah, nothing to me is more aesthetic than a big mob of your know, cows or sheep that are managed well. Um, I think the one thing I don't we don't experience on a farm. And I think um, you know, look at the neighbouring farm at the moment. They haven't got any grass. We're in a dry period. Um, they they've got big costs uh, putting on you know fertilisers. Um, they're cutting hay even though there's hardly any to cut. The running costs. Uh, that just doesn't appeal to me. Mm. Uh, our, our run, my running cost is pretty much my time to move the polywire. And so the, the polywire, Joel Salatin calls the, the greatest farm invention ever. Uh, he calls it the handbrake, steering wheel, and accelerator of pasture management. Mm-hmm. And it basically allows you to give an allocation 
uh, whether it's daily, half daily, or two daily, but to give a, a allocated area to your animals very regularly, and so your paddock size is, is elastic. Um, you can you can change it based on the season, the age of your animals, and and so on. And mm. yeah, the whole rest of the farm is, is on is on rest. And I think a, another key thing in with the the style of grazing um, is that the with the taller pasture and the the closeness of the animals, you're actually able to trample um, a small portion or a large portion, depending on your stocking density and your timing. Um, and basically, you can mulch your landscape um, through using the, the the positive impact of the hoof of the animals and lay down the grass and and basically make contact with the ground plus the manure and urine that's um, on there. So everything's got contact and it builds builds organic matter above ground. Mm-hmm. It um, keeps the soil, um, the temperature lower, um, and it, it it responds quicker. It bounces back. And also the with a larger root system, uh, apparently a quarter of the plant's um, energy goes into root exudates mm-hmm. before the um, flowering or seed stage. So the you know the roots can feed the soil. So we're building organic matter underneath the ground through the dieback of the roots and that pulse, the regrowth, and above ground through the, through the trample. And we've got an, a car park that we've now got well three four centimeters of soil on top of that in six years just just through grazing. And um, I know for sure I can't grow that much organic matter in the garden. Even years past on a, on a closed system, we were growing a huge amount of um, mature you know, winter cover crops and composting all of them and returning the compost. Um, it's positive, but there's, there's still a challenge there. So, um, so with the sheep, I kind of, it's a bit of a joke. I call it sheep, sheep mulching and (laughs) it's, it's pretty effective. The main input is my time to create that temporary paddock. Other than that through, um, I'm not sure if you know what, um, facial eczema is. It's, it's, um, in humid, hot, humid conditions, the lower part of the grass can have like a fungal or a spore count in there. Oh, right. And if the animals um, eat that, eat down low in there, and they can actually get what's called facial eczema, and that attacks all their internal organs. It's a, it's, it's horrible. Oh, god. So, so it's, it's such a, um, it's so prevalent here that the, the veterinarian industry advertise in the newspaper each week the spore count it's kind of like being in a dry climate with the the, the fire sign you know today's yes. fire and it's uh published in the newspapers and so we've, we're in some of the highest facial eczema area there is and in, in probably new zealand but definitely in taranaki and we've, we don't select our animals to to breed away from facial eczema some people do do this just through never grazing down low in the pasture or hard grazing, if you want to call it, yeah. um, it's one more positive. Same with foot rot. We're in a very wet climate. We should have you know, a lot of foot rot. The more I focus on this trample, which is it's actually called the residual, the, the trample of, um, of the pasture that's left after they've you know, been through and squashed it all down, um, the, that residual is key. Mm. Your recovery periods – all your diversity, that's all, all nice and dandy, but it needs, uh, without residual, if you're forcing your animals to eat it to the ground, um, you don't have a buffer in dry climate, wet climate, um, the rebound, the regrowth, it's much slower. So really, um, I think just just that, um, that 
those concepts there are um, huge potential to make big change on our landscapes, lessen our inputs. Mm. You know, I've got no problem with using inputs on farms, so I just particularly don't like spending money on them myself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. And and from what you've you've said there and what you've described, it's kind of like what the type of a work you do is building resilience in the soil resilience in the landscape and resilience in your animals because you've got a decreased sensitivity to a lot of the afflictions that many farmers in your area experience and yet you guys don't seem to be. Um, yeah, no, it's been pretty, you know, with very few um, challenges with, you know, ill health or lack of pasture. Um, those, those things just aren't things we have to, to, to deal with. Mm. And are you guys certified organic or anything like that? No, we're not certified, but we there's I'd say you know in terms of the gardens we we make all our own our compost, our own seed raising mix. I I make a fertilizer using sheep sheep manure. Yeah. Um, we direct market everything local. So the I guess my my kind of my idea is that our our certification is our story, that, and that that people know who we are. Yeah, and always. It's been it's been really interesting with the development of the market garden, which we only began um, last summer and we've been giving that a real push. Uh, last summer, my biggest biggest challenge was, I mean, we didn't have a summer and we had a lot of work to do. That was, you know, I'm not saying it was um, easy. It was, there were some challenges there, but I, I think not having a marketing background, not doing any kind of business studies through school, um, and then developing, you know, a, a, a business. I was kind of cautious of how we're going to actually sell our product. And so we're in a dairy farming region. There is a shortage of produce. Um, our, our our customers have just been approaching us. It's been really neat. So we've got um, three buyers clubs, which is just um, groups of families that want good food. Um, there's about sixty-eight families there in total. They they send in their, their orders to us and they do everything in terms of all of the communication, emailing, um, um, conferring, putting orders together. We just do the delivery and the drop-off a lot of the times. There's no packaging involved. And we just had another company approach us. Um, they're a 30-year family business. Um, they're a, f- a fresh fish business. They they want a salad mix in their shop. Oh, wow. Um, so so it's uh, it's really positive. I think it's probably, um, I mean, farmers probably say this for always, but I don't think there's ever been a more exciting time to be involved in agriculture and the just the, the small-scale market gardening movement. It's really neat to see, you know, people, um, uh, the, the, some of these new small-scale tools that are coming out that are very cost-effective and um, the – the movement is moving very quick. It's like a part-time job, just keeping up with all the R and D, and you know the development and what's working for people in different places around the world. And the social media is one positive tool to, that you know uh, keeps me in touch with farmers all around the world. I really enjoy that. Yeah, as well. Awesome. Um, and another thing about not needing to be certified, I think you know it does 
force a deeper connection between you and the customer because they therefore need to actually chat and ask you about how things are done and everything. I think that's lovely. Um, but also, yeah. like, if an animal's actually genuinely really sick with a microbial infection, like, it's sort of, it's, I mean, that's what antibiotics are for, really, for save the day stuff, yep. if, if needed. Yep. And then that doesn't con- d- restrict you from being able to help an animal who's desperately unwell. Um, yep, yep, absolutely. Um, so I think the probably the my, my message would be um, well, what I would like to see, you know, over time is that there's a more of a public awareness as to the recovery periods and what is what is positive grazing, mm. and you know who are the farmers that are doing this. I see uh, there's a lot of really positive work going on on the New South Wales coast. Yeah, um, I do. I do a lot of work in Australia. I really, I love that part of the country and, and what's going on there. In Victoria, also um, North Northern California. Um, I think the if we kind of open up a whole another can of worms, the access access to land for for youth is is quite a contentious issue with the you know the cost of um, farmland. If you want a market garden, you need to be close to your population, and that that land is more expensive. What I'm seeing in some of the more progressive places like North CA is people are actually stacking enterprises, and whether it's the the young farming on the elderly's land, whether it's running your chickens behind someone else's dairy cows, which um, is really positive, um, or in in North California, I'm seeing lots of people um, stacking portable ventures, so like mobile graziers that are doing doing work for the state and private private landholders, where um, their context there is um, pressure from fire, and so they've got their animals, they've got portable infrastructures, um, trailer units, and they're basically um, like the old shepherds. They're they're grazing on other people's land. And, and making an income from from that, so um, reducing fire pressure, grazing parks that otherwise would be mowed, um, youth youth stacking enterprises on the you know the aged farmers landscape, enabling the the farmers to stay on their farms until they're you know ready for a rest home. Mm. Uh, really, really excites me. Uh, we after my first course with Joel Salatin. About five years ago, I came home and basically started grazing the whole neighbourhood. Expand, <laughs> love it. Yeah, just and you know, I really I've developed my flock of sheep on other people's land, and I, um, I would in some cases I should be invoicing them for the, you know, the land management that we're yeah, doing. Yeah, I was just about to say because you probably leave it in far better shape than where it was than how it was found. Yeah, true. We're just mm. New Zealand's you know, a little conservative. We're not quite ready for that one here, but hey, you know, maybe another ten years. It's a um, <laughs> a possibility. Mm. Also, I have a friend with business here. Um, I could call him a, a, a landless farmer. He's developed his whole whole portable business on other people's land. So, uh, Greg Judy, he's an American farmer. He did the same. He, you know, the farm got. The family farm got so bad, he, he sold everything except for the dirt. And then he, he built up his equity by, graze, he called it custom grazing. He would graze other people's cows on another person's land. Oh, and wow. built up his equity and he now owns three of his own farms. Um, he grazes seven farms in total. 
they're all close proximity and he runs one mob of cows um, so he moves them between the farms and that gives him um, I think he's in Missouri they're yeah. very dry summers. he he's developed um, you know from he's gone from scarcity to truly to abundance he's um, loves what he's doing um, he's having real positive impact on the farm um, and he has this one story um, of one of his leases um, where after after 12 months the landowner gave him um, basically gave him the money back the rent that he'd paid to, to lease and gave him back the lease agreement and voluntarily signed over his land for life as long as Greg Judy was alive he got to you know, he, they were just so thrilled with what he was doing to the landscape so huge potential for um, you know finding a way to farm if, if you, you know you can't go out and buy a farm and I guess that my big aha over the last few years or aha moment has been um, we built our farm from scratch and we've still got a long ways to go but my realization was if you're not if you're beginning from scratch and you're not taking over the family farm it's just a huge job and especially on the small acreage I think it's probably quite common that that's underestimated you know mm. the, the time and money same for all of us some um, time and money it takes to to get underway yeah and um and from what i mean from i'm hearing throughout your entire um amazing words of wisdom here that that it sounds like we can actually use animals and this is certainly something i've taken away from going to Joel's Salatin seminars myself and meeting him um, and speaking to the lovely Paul Grieve from Southern California on show number six, who's a wonderful regenerative farmer. I don't know if you um, you know of his work, but um, you, you sound like you'd get along if you're ever in that part of the, the um, world. I'll intro you guys. Yeah, um, yeah thanks. And, uh, and it just sounds to me like what we're hearing um, about the blanket statement that meat is killing our planet is actually false and it's about the way one farms that is either killing or restoring our planet. Would that be Absolute, an accurate uh, statement? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think the key the key word there is context. You know, it's um, it's yeah, it's like you know, we can everyone wants data as a, as to back up, but if that what's the data based on? Is it conventional ag? Is it you know best practice ag? And a lot of the time, it's just you know we hear this data, but we, we, there's no context given to it to give it. To, to give it meaning mm. uh, I've I, you know I can only work so many hours in the day and, and make so much positive impact on on the soil in my market garden so I like to go to sleep but while I'm sleeping my my animals if managed well um, I can I can manage so much more acreage with them and um, yeah I think it's well Darren Darren Doherty a, a well-known Australian farm designer he says, even if you don't, you know, put in dams and do earthworks and do stuff on contour and that, the most effective you can be is through timed grazing, mm. through that um, leveraging the, um, the 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 managed animal impact and the recovery periods on your pastures and, and yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's very positive. Mm. And um, something that uh, often the argument also is, is that, it organic or spray free or um, low input or biodynamic are always more costly to the planet when it comes to water or, or other things like um, 
what are some of the arguments you often hear? Um, space required, but it sounds like you're literally debunking all of those <laughs> from your own experience. Um, it doesn't sound like that's the case at all. It sounds like it can be more fruitful, yeah, higher think, yield uh, in less space. Yep, we pretty pretty much the pattern we're seeing. I know Joel Salatin talks about this, and this has been my journey for five years. I I, I just couldn't get enough animals. We we choose to breed our own rather than buying them in for yeah. several reasons. But um, as I began grazing on other people's land for for about five years, I just I just couldn't get enough animals, and pretty much, and, and this would be, you know, different everywhere. But once you begin mob grazing within the first twelve months, usually you can double the number of animals that you have on the farm, and that's the that's this tricky thing here that. Um, you know, everyone thinks, okay, overgrazing is too many animals, but it's not. It's timing and management is, is the what's causing the overgrazing on that young pasture. Mm. Once you begin tall grass farming, you need you need more animals to keep up to be able to manage manage that pasture. And so that was that was our experience. Yeah. Amazing. Just and- reconnecting there. Um, so that was our experience for, for about five years. We kept all of our female sheep. Um, for all the female lambs, we kept them until they were, um, gave them a chance at being mothers. Yeah. And all the male um, sheep, yeah. which when they're castrated, they're called, they're called a, a weather. Mm-hmm. Um, they, conventional industry, the, the, a weather or a lamb will go, go to the market um, five or six months old. Mm-hmm. We would keep keep them right through the next winter and they'll be ready for market at about a year and a half, and I think much better eating. Also, the to do the regeneration on a landscape with the animals has been another learning curve of, of mine. The it's the the two year olds and older, so the the adults that have um, a bigger set of teeth, uh, a bigger hoof, uh, and a stronger constitution or or um, stomach or gut to be able to actually do that regenerative work. Because every landscape's different. Some of my leases are in a state of ruin; nobody wants them. Others are lush and abundant. The lambs you need you need to kind of baby the babies until they're of a certain size or strength, and then you can kind of join them to the team. And you know, we can. Um, I've been I've taken over some pastures that haven't been grazed for as long as eight years, and they're just you know four foot high or a meter and a half high sometimes, and dry and rank and. If I increase the stocking density, that's how close the animals are, mm-hmm. and give it the appropriate time. So maybe like a hundred animals on third of an acre, quarter of an acre for wow. 24, 24, 36 hours. And like you can't, you know, the, the pasture, this rank pasture is so tall you can't see the animals. And a day later, you pull them out, and we can put down six, 10, 10 inches of mulch um, through. The, the vertical aspect of the pasture and the stocking density, just all those feet to be able to massage it, yeah. that grass, and, you know, push it to the ground. And so that's sort of that first um, step of regenerating that a, land. Uh, pretty, pretty effective toll, management mm. toll, and you can really see the turnaround in, in, in the landscape. So I kind of would love to see more residual on farms, more of this management. Um, it's definitely low. And, you know, in August, I, I drove over to Thames, which is a four-hour drive from here, 
and I saw one one strip on one farm where um, they'd moved the animals and there was any residual. Um, I'm like a hawk <laughs> looking over farms and looking yeah, at animals. I bet. <laughs> and, and so that's kind of an, was an analogy to me as to, you know, the we're literally grazing it to the ground, um, hard grazing, very, very um, minimal recovery periods on our pastures in New Zealand. And there's this huge potential. It's just management. We don't need to go out and buy another farm or buy big toys. Um, we just need to um, maybe sell some of those big toys and pay someone to move electric fence. And, mm. and you can put down a lot more fertility because you've got more food and vertically in a, and in a small space in a small amount of time. So we've only got a that managed impact is very timely. We've got more food going in the mouth and coming out the back end Mm-mm. to be able to put down in a small area. Um, so that that's really uh, um, addresses the fertility issues. So the fertility gets better and better. I mean, wow. you know, I'm sure in, you know, the, like David Attenborough and the, the, um, the, you know, nature's documentaries, we don't see fertilizer trucks out there behind the wild no. bison. And, <laughs> the prairie don't. And, yeah, so. and isn't that interesting? Because then we end up, instead of spending the money on all the big, toys as you say you spend the money on amazing jobs for people and that's uh yeah. that's a that's an issue right now so um, yeah i mean i don't want to farm by myself and tell you we have people that come and come and work with us on the farm and, and i love it and mm. um i think i think anyone I, I really can't recommend a book by joel salatin enough it's called fields of farmers and it's really about relationships it's not about how to farm and it's been really um a real positive influence on us and everyone that I know that um, reads it also. Um, whether you run your own business, um, you've got a big family, or you are farming, there's lots of gold nuggets in there for, for people to enjoy. Beautiful. And um, and what's next for you personally? You know, you're an amazing educator, you travel the world, you run seminars, you help people, even at a um, an urban level, get their veggie gardens going. There's so much work that you do. What What's happening in, on the horizon for you 2018? Uh, 2018, we've got Country Calendar. They're a New Zealand farm program, um, second longest screening program in the world, second to Coronation Street. Oh, wow. So come in. They're coming, they're coming into February. Uh, we've got, we've always got events here with that we run ourselves and up and other farmers coming. We've got Darren Doherty. He's a Victorian farmer. His business name is Regrarians. He's here in January. Awesome. And we're we're on phase two of infrastructures on the farm this year. So we've like just finished the walk in chiller. We're putting up more greenhouses, putting in irrigation. Uh, I'll probably be travelling again next winter to the US mm-hmm. and um, I'm actually uh, long term I'm interested in writing a grazing book there's um, no shortage of information for grazing beef mm-hmm. um, you know holistically or mob grazing uh, like I could probably give you a, a reading list of 100 books but there's literally nothing um, written on grazing sheep oh wow and well that's your book you've got so to write I'd it like, Jody. yeah I'd, I'd like to spend the time to, to do this and really the the travels with teaching the gardening work have, have been my vehicle to visiting graziers all around the world and I just want to keep doing a bit more of that um, just keep hearing more farmer stories and seeing their production um, fill out my experiences and yeah 
just get it written. Mm. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge and your amazing positivity in a in a world that either so so negatively often speaks of grazing animals. Um, and I completely understand people who make vegetarian and vegan choices. It's not um, an attack yeah, on the way yeah. people eat, of course, but it is for the people who are omnivores um, constantly wondering whether they're killing the earth by eating animals, <laughs> you know, and really it does come down to how you shop and spend your dollars, which farmers you start to connect with more to send a happy message out to the whole world of farming that this is making sense to us as people who eat the meat and therefore we want to see more of it out there. So thank you so much for spending the time today to to um, to explain how you've been doing it um, to such great success and, and you're really only just warming up. Cool. Thanks for your for your time today. I think one of the last things I'd like to kind of mention at the end is the um, kind of my passion for low stress stock handling, and that's again it's something that's made a huge difference, not just on our farm, but everywhere I go and the work that I do. It's not something I invented, but um, there's a book by a man called Bert Smith, and it's a manual that came out mid '80s, and it's it's just called Moving Him, and he's identified. Um, some pretty basic concepts that I'd love to see the big industry really embrace low stress stock handling and actually reward their farmers that the, the farm with these concepts. But if you look at our Facebook page, Roebuck Farm, the the banner movie at the top, you'll see um, a, a film of of me running ahead of the sheep, and uh, that kind of when that was released, it gave a, a lot of attention, but very simple. Um, if if you um, move your animals and you're ahead of them and you call them, you become the leader and everything changes. The the totally distresses the animal. They associate you with going to the salad bar or you know, the restaurant, and um, that basically it's follow the leader. There's a few other little things in there that I won't go into, but really learning how to turn an animal just by if if you walk towards an animal as you go past its shoulder it will make it walk, walk forward. So it's like a conveyor belt. So once you put put this into place, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's fun working with other people's animals that they otherwise couldn't move. Really oh, wow. basic and Showing them how it's most, done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think what I like about most of this, you know, the Regina Ag or even farming in general is most of most things are pretty simple. It's um, You don't have to ha- have a university degree to be able to, you know, move an animal or a, a measure grass in a, in a paddock um the the what i've enjoyed within the last 20 years of agriculture is finding the farmers that i um enjoy or respect or value and and working with them uh whether it's interning apprenticing or volunteering and just that shoulder to shoulder you know the, the passion transfer and um the old you know the old um apprenticeship um, really seeing this a, a big comeback and in, in, in this and people um, upskilling before they settle down and you know and, and develop their own farms so yeah thank you for um, thanks for having us on the show today oh you're so welcome and I think you know your your openness and your you know your wealth of knowledge but also just as you said there um your curiosity like there's always something we can learn from another farmer and how we can all keep the conversation channels open and 
just make sure that at all times we're thinking about how we can do this best by people and planet to have a thriving, successful farm uh, is something that, uh, you know, every farmer would value. And sometimes we need to be reminded that we might know everything about how we've done it up until this point, but we don't know everything full stop. So let's keep asking questions. Yeah, always more to learn. <laughs> always more to learn. That's why I love doing my show. I learn from you guys every week and it's such a privilege. So thank you once again, Jody. Well, that's another show done. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Always so much inspiration from our beautiful guests. And I just want to take a minute to say thank you uh, for taking the time to leave a review for our show because it helps us stay visible and helps other people who maybe haven't discovered it yet go, ooh, that looks like it might be worth a look. So if the show has provided value to you, there's nothing you can do to thank me more than to leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you access the show from. So what you do is you just search generally in the podcast app. Don't be in the list of shows because you won't be able to leave a review there. So once you've searched generally, you'll see the tile come up and you click on that tile and then a little set of tabs will come up and the middle one is called review. And from there, you can click it, star rate it and leave a review. And I appreciate that so much. Now, if you want to connect with the rest of the Lotox Life community, we're over on Instagram at Lotox Life or on the main website where there are a whole bunch of recipes, some incredible e-learning opportunities depending on what your Lotox goals are. And that is www.lotoxlife.com. And of course, if you want to check out the podcast show notes, you just do forward slash podcast and everything's there. So I look forward to continuing our chats in between shows online in the community. 